You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning. That was really good. Welcome to Kings. We're really glad you're here today. If you're visiting with us in your first time, we're so glad you checked us out for the second Sunday of the year. We're in the new series called No One Left Behind, second weekend. And I hope last week, for those of you who are here, really challenged you, spoke to you, encouraged you, and messed you up. That's my goal as your pastor is to mess you up every single Sunday. So, <laughs> excuse me, I've been sick all week, so I apologize. I think we got six foot distance where we at. Um, so, uh, about a month ago, I picked up a book that I read, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, and I, I don't know why, I just felt like God put it on my heart to read it again. The book is called Sifted. This is what it looks like. It's mostly a church leader's, church planter's book. I, I don't know that you would get anything out of it, so sometimes when I tell stories about books, you guys wanna know what the name of the book. So it's called Sifted by a pastor in Hawaii named Wayne Cordero, and um, he makes this point in the book that I had never considered, and he says this. He says, there's this point in the Bible where Jesus is before the disciples and it's just before he's arrested. It is just before he is crucified. And he gathers them together and he looks specifically at Simon. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, he says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. First of all, I'd never thought about this. I'd read this many, many times. So if you're maybe new to this church thing, you're not sure who the characters in the story are, Simon is the real name, the birth name, of the guy we call Peter, the apostle Peter, if you've ever heard about, you know, Peter standing at the pearly gates, you open a joke that way kind of thing, that's that guy. So Jesus has gathered the 12 together, and he gives this warning, but he looks specifically at Simon. And as I was reading this book, Wayne Cordero makes the point, never thought of this before, why didn't Jesus say no? Have you ever thought about that? Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, and I told him, no. Have a great day, Simon. Instead, Jesus says, and I said yes. But I want you to know, I didn't just say yes, I got your back. Now that one messed me up for a while. I don't know about any of you, but that one messed me up for a while. Because it made me consider the possibility that, <coughs> excuse me, God allows us to go through difficult times in order to grow us. Have you thought about that? But what's more interesting to me is, as I looked at this again this week, is just before this, so again, it's Bible, the best way to understand your Bible is to look at the context. What happened right before and what happened right after? There's probably a reason that passage is sitting where it's sitting and it's going through and saying what it's saying. So if you look right before this in verse 28, Jesus says to them, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. So again, Jesus gathers the disciples together. He's given them this last pep talk before he goes to the cross, before he's arrested and his flesh torn from his body, crucified, will die and be separated. And he says, you are those who have stood by me. And then he goes on and says, now in your hour of need, I have prayed for you. And I thought that is so crazy powerful. 
Because what it tells me is the savior of the world appreciated being surrounded by people who loved him. All right, here we go. Life just fell apart. Who's standing with you? It might be a terrible medical diagnosis. Like you, it just floored you. I remember when my mom got her second breast cancer diagnosis, and it was a bad deal. And by God's grace, that was over five years ago now. But I'll never forget, she got it because she was friends with the doctor and because it was such a serious kind. He actually called her on a Sunday afternoon. She was in the Target parking lot when she got the phone call, and she just sat down next to her car in the parking lot, floored by the information. Maybe for you, it's something harder. Perhaps a spouse has come to you and said, I just don't feel it anymore, and I'm out. Or perhaps um, there's some tragedy in your home. A fire has taken place, or maybe a, a metaphorical fire, or it's an injury of some sort, or it's an addiction that you learn about, some private sin you didn't know about. Perhaps you lost your job, or you lost income, or it's a COVID diagnosis. Life just fell apart. And you didn't have this one in your schedule, right? Like, it's not like you went, next Tuesday at four o'clock, heart attack. All right, here we go. <laughs> Nobody schedules tragedy. It just happens. Have you noticed that? But it does happen. Who's standing with you? You got a name? If you don't have a name, then by the end of today, I hope you feel very challenged to let us help you find a name. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, which we're gonna study next month, I gotta set this up before we go to the passage. But there's this battle that is going to occur. And a guy named Joshua, who uh, the book of Joshua was written about Joshua, Joshua is going to fight a group of people called the Amalekites. And God has told Moses, who is leading the people at that time, to go up on a mountaintop. And Moses' staff throughout the book of Exodus represents the presence and the power of God with Moses and with the people of Israel. So Moses goes up on a mountaintop and he looks out over the battle taking place. And as long as he's got his staff held high, the Israelites are winning the battle. But I don't know about you guys, um, years ago I did P90X. You could tell it's been a couple years, all right? I get it. But there's this really annoying thing that the, they would have you do in the video to warm up. And they were arm circles. You know what arm circles are? You literally just put your arms out. You go like this. And we would do this for like a minute this direction. And you turn around and do it like a minute the other direction. Then you'd like make these big ones like a minute this direction. And you turn around and like do it a minute this direction. And that was just to warm up your shoulders before you actually had to work out. And by the end of that, when you, know, you haven't been in shape and you're starting this video, like your shoulder like, yeah, I'm good. I'm, like we'll come back tomorrow, Tony. And we'll, we'll pick up the rest of the video tomorrow. Now, I want you to picture a battle that goes on for hours, and Moses has to keep his staff held high. I mean, you can, you can do this a few times, but how long does it take before your arms just get tired? Well, here's that story in Exodus chapter 17, verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur, H-U-R, for those listening at home online, that is the name of a gentleman, went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now, guys, we're talking about war. When we're talking about winning. We're not talking about scoring touchdowns or goals. 
We're not talking about interceptions. We're talking about real people what? Dying. So now the weight of the world feels like it's on literally Moses' shoulders and his capacity to hold up his arms. And you wonder to yourself, Moses, if you knew this day was coming, what kind of training would you go into to prepare for this day? Would you be out there doing pull-ups or something every day so that you could make it the hours necessary to get the job done? But then it says in the next verse, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Well, that's great for his backside. The arms are still gonna get tired. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Joshua won his battle because Moses fought his. Moses won his battle so Joshua could win because Aaron and Hur lifted up his arms. So let's come back to our original question. Life just fell apart. Who are you gonna call? Who are you gonna turn to? Who are you gonna be able to lean into? Who's praying for you? Who's lifting up your arms? Who's walking with you through whatever you are going through? Because the reality is, you are either coming out of a battle, you are in currently the middle of a battle, or you are right now being prepared for a battle. All of those things are true. You're like, that's a depressing way to look at life. I get that. But this is the biblical way to look at life. We live in the wealthiest nation probably in the history of the world. And so sometimes it's easy for us to miss just how much of a real battle is being waged all around us all the time because of our creature comforts, because of the fact that we have air conditioning and heat and food in abundance and desserts even more so by God's grace and greater's ice cream. Thank you, Jesus. There, because of these things, it's easy for us to miss the fact that there is a spiritual battle being waged for your soul, for the soul of your children, for the soul of your spouse. So that every time you are actually having tension with the people you love, you're not just having tension with them. There's something bigger going on. Paul makes this point in the book of Ephesians. In uh, chapter six, verse 10, he says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there's a day coming. You may be in it. You may have just got out of it. You may be waiting for the next one. But there's a day coming where you are going to be in a very real battle. And there are powers and authorities and spiritual forces you can't see. And I realize if I were going to just try to preach a gospel right now, to preach a word that would uh, speak to the masses, I would not talk about demonic forces, Satan, unseen things, because most people think that's weird, and they don't know what to do with it. And the reason they don't know what to do with it is because Hollywood has given you a very warped 
view of what that looks like. Most of the time, when we're talking about demonic forces, we're talking about what we call angels of light. They don't look like you and I tend to think they look. They look like very good and appealing kinds of things. They have been studying you your whole life. They know exactly what attracts you most. There are temptations in this world that when they're laid before me, they don't even kind of get my attention. They aren't a big deal to me. But there are others that if you put them before me, they could be a trap if I'm not careful. And the same goes for you. And there is a group of people, forces, that I can't see that have been watching me my whole life. They know the ones that are triggers for me. And they know the moments of the day, the moments of the week, the seasons of my life, to put those before me to try to trap me and trick me and get me to jump into them. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, in that context, he's actually talking about the power of repentance and forgiveness. But regardless, he goes on to say, the reason we need to repent, the reason we need to forgive is because we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Even though we can't see the battle, we are well aware of his tricks. We are well aware of the ways that he tries to trap us. So if we live our lives as if it's not real, then we just try to go through life having a better sports for our kids, having a bigger and better house for our families, making and accumulating more money that will one day leave behind, and we will miss the fact that there is a battle for our souls raging all around us all the time. So my encouragement to you, my challenge to you, and we get in the sermon here, but we won't. You don't get off that easy. My, my encouragement to you, my challenge to you is fight. Fight as if God is with you and you are not alone. Remember, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Sifting is a violent process. Back in the day when they had to separate the, the wheat from the chaff, and they would take it and shake it and throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow the excess junk away. And they would have to do this. It's a very violent process. When Jesus was picking this, it wasn't just a, a cool phrase he used. He's trying to picture something in their minds that would bring to surface just how violent of a process they're going to go through. This is going to be hard for you. You are going to be shaken. You are going to be uh, shook to your core. But when this happens, I want you to know I have been praying for you. And I'm so thankful you have gone with me through my stuff. And then fascinating, he says, and Peter, afterward, after you have returned. Jesus has already predicted that Peter is going to sin. And if you don't know the story, that night... When the armies come to arrest Jesus, Peter goes to battle for Jesus, cuts off the servant's ear, and Jesus stops him and says, Peter, we're not doing that. This isn't a, we're not gonna fight a physical war. We're not gonna kill people. We're not gonna hurt people. And it says he picks up the ear and put the ear back on the servant. One of our members who usually comes to the service, uh, he pointed out to me years ago that that was the high priest's servant and think about Jesus' graciousness in this, that he actually sent the high priest servant with a fixed ear back to serve the high priest. Even that is the mercy of God as a testimony to the high priest. I think if I were Jesus, I'd put it on a little crooked, just as a constant reminder. <laughs> my, my face masks don't fit anymore, sir. <laughs> anyway. There's a good reason I'm not Jesus. There's a lot of them. That's just one of them. That's just one of them. 
think about this. Then that night, right after that, Peter denies Jesus three times. At least one of those is to a young girl around a campfire. And she says, wait a minute, I recognize your accent. Are you the one that was with the guy in there that's being tried, beaten, spit on, and mocked? And Peter screams, I swear I do not know him. Peter failed his test. And Jesus prayed for him anyway. But Peter, Peter was already told by Jesus, afterwards, when you have returned, encourage the brothers. I hope you never fail your test. I hope you pass every single time. But even if you have failed your test, Jesus has prayed for you and he longs for you to get back to serving others. See, that's the point. The reason we're doing this series called No One Left Behind is because we want to be the kind of church where we pursue relationships with God and others, where we see ourselves as a part of something bigger than ourselves. That church is not something we do. Church is something we are. And so we are trying to become like Christ in this world by living the way that he lives and doing the things that he has taught us to do. I've got to give a little bit of context. Some of you won't understand why I'm giving this context. Others of you will appreciate it. But years ago when I married my amazing wife, um, she made a commitment to God at some point in her life not to watch rated R movies. I had not made that commitment. But in honor to... Or, order to honor my wife, so the other way around, uh, I agreed I wouldn't watch rated R movies. Over time, I kind of became convicted. There's not really much in most of these movies that, like a lot of times I'll walk away with various feelings of anxiety or anxiousness or grossness or temptation, and so there's really not a lot in these, so I, just, I was okay to just give up rated R movies. But then over time, occasionally a rated R movie would come out, like The Passion of the Christ, and I would think to myself, ooh, I wanna see that one. So every once in a while, when my wife is out of town, I'd get her blessing. She'd usually go look at the movie, be like, yeah, there's no content that I'm really worried about you watching in there. It's just the way I honor her with my body, my heart, my mind. And so I get her blessing, and she gives me it. And there was a movie that came out a few years ago, and I saw it. And I'm not, I'm not saying you should go see this movie. So I want to be very careful for those of you who are anti-rated R movies. I'm not saying you should go see this movie, but it's really good. Anyway, so it's really, really gory. It's really, really grotesque. It's really, really graphic. I just give you all the warnings that a person could get. But the movie was called uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Anybody in here see Hacksaw Ridge? Okay, a few of you. Now, Hacksaw Ridge in the movie is played by Andrew Garfield. Here's a picture of Andrew Garfield, um, Spider-Man as a soldier. And um, you may not be able to tell from there, but he's got a Bible here. It says Holy Bible. So he's holding a Bible in his hand. And as the movie goes, the movie was actually pretty accurate. It wasn't like The Greatest Showman. And uh, they actually did a really good job of telling the story of a real person whose name was Desmond Doss. Here's a picture of the real Desmond Doss. Um, they don't look anything alike, but Desmond has an amazing story. And I went to desmonddoss.com and I grabbed the story so that I could tell you a little bit of it from his words so that it wasn't just me summarizing. But I just wanted to read you some of the, his testimony from his website. It says this. On April 1st, 1942, Desmond Doss joined the United States Army. Little did he realize that three and a half years later, he would be standing on the White House lawn, receiving the nation's highest award for his bravery and courage under fire. Of the 16 million men in uniform during World War II, only 431 
received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Doss refused to carry a gun. His only weapons were his Bible and his faith in God. President Harry S. Truman warmly shook the hand of Corporal Desmond Thomas Doss and then held it the entire time his citation was read aloud to those gathered outside the White House on October 12, 1945. I'm proud of you, Truman said. You really deserve this. I consider this a greater honor than being president. His religious convictions wouldn't allow him to carry a gun, and that was not super popular among some of those he served. Multiple attempts to make it harder for him so he'd quit and failed. One man in the barracks warned him, Doss, as soon as we get to combat, I'll make sure you won't come back alive. He believed his duty was to obey God, though, and serve his country. But it had to be in that order. His unwavering convictions were most important. Things began to turn around when the men discovered that this quiet, unassuming medic had a way to heal the blisters on their march-weary feet. And if someone fainted from heat stroke, this medic was at their side offering his own canteen. Desmond never held a grudge. What kindness and gentle courtesy, with kindness and gentle courtesy, he, he treated those who had mistreated him. He lived the golden rule. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Desmond served in combat on the islands of Guam, Leet, I'm probably saying that wrong, and Okinawa. In each military operation, he exhibited extraordinary dedication to his fellow men. While others were taking life, he was busy saving life. When the cry, medic, ran out on the battlefield, he never considered his own safety. He repeatedly ran into the heat of the battle to treat a fallen comrade and carry him back to safety. All this while enemy bullets whizzed past and mortar shells exploded around him. Several times while treating a wounded soldier, Desmond was so close to enemy lines, he could hear the whispering of Japanese voices. In May 1945, as German troops were surrendering on the other side of the world, Japanese troops were fiercely defending to their last man, the only remaining barrier, Okinawa and the Meda Escarpment, to an allied invasion of their homeland. The men in Desmond's division were repeatedly trying to capture the Meda Escarpment, an imposing rock face the soldiers called Hacksaw Ridge. After the company had secured at the top of the cliff, the Americans were stunned when suddenly enemy forces rushed them in various counterattacks. Officers ordered an immediate retreat. Soldiers rushed to climb back down the steep cliff. All the soldiers, except one. Less than one-third of the men made it back down. The rest lay wounded scattered across enemy soil, abandoned and left for dead if they weren't already. One lone soldier disobeyed orders and charged back into the firefight to rescue as many of his men as he could before he either collapsed or died trying. His iron determination and unflagging courage resulted in at least 75 lives saved that day, May 5th, 1945. Eventually, the Americans took Hacksaw Ridge. Okinawa was captured inch by bloody inch. Several days later, during an unsuccessful night raid, Desmond was severely wounded. Hiding in a shell hole with two riflemen, a Japanese grenade landed at his feet. The explosion sent him flying. The shrapnel tore into his leg and up to his hip. He treated his own wounds as best he could. While attempting to reach safety, he was then hit by a sniper's bullet that shattered his arm. 
His brave actions as a combat, me a combat medic were done, but not before insisting that his litter bearers take another man first before rescuing him. And then the website said this, wounded, in pain, and losing blood, he still put others ahead of his own safety. He would choose to die so another could live. After all, that's what he read in his Bible. Such was the character demonstrated by Jesus Christ. It's been said that the church is the one place that shoots their wounded. And let me just camp on that for a second because I have been accused of that at times before. First of all, it is not shooting the wounded to practice discipline with each other. Just like when you hold your children accountable for things they did and they say, well, everybody makes mistakes. You're like, yeah, but wait a minute. You, you know, you caught the house on fire. You know, whatever it is, right? Like, like we're gonna hold you accountable to the rules that we have in our family. That is not shooting the wounded. But what is shooting the wounded is not pursuing somebody in forgiveness or grace. What is shooting the wounded is not building a path where somebody could come back to Christ to be restored to you. What is shooting the wounded is closing yourself off because of hurt and hardness and not allowing restoration to take place or to be a church that is too judgmental or harsh for anybody who is broken and dealing with life's thing is to come back to meet God. We all stand at a cross needing a savior and regardless of why you need it, we all need him. And I wanna be a church that never loses sight of the fact that we need him. My call to us is that we would follow in God's footsteps. In fact, in Paul, Paul says in Ephesians 5, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our mission as a church is to become more like Christ. The way we measure success is not whether or not we pack this place out every service, every week we to add 25 services. The way we measure success is at the end of this week, at the end of this month, at the end of this year, do we look more like Jesus than we did the year before? And that's exactly what Paul's trying to get to. Follow God's example. What does that mean? As dearly loved children walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. So part of what Paul is trying to get us to do is he's saying, okay, you be like Jesus. What did Jesus do? First thing he did is he gave himself up to who? To God. He gave himself up to God. But then for what purpose? For us. He gave his life. And what that means is he literally walked with God the Father. He was obedient to God in everything God asked him to do. Yesterday, we had our elders retreat, like our new elders brought him in, had a great day. It was just amazing to be together with these guys. And we prayed and we read scripture and we watched some sermons and we strategized and talked about some important things going on. It was awesome. We were together from 8 a.m. to 1 yesterday. It was just great. Love those guys. Awesome. And as we were kind of looking at the stuff and talking about this stuff, excuse me for a second, I'm gonna cough. That's a warning to the sound guys. <coughs> I gave you a chance. All right. So 
as we met together and we're talking together, we're praying about all this stuff, we're pursuing, God, what do you want us to do? How do we give up ourselves? How do we pursue you? And what is coming out of those conversations is us as saying as a church, we want to be the kind of church that gives up our lives for the good of this world. Who isn't afraid to be obedient to God. And one of the passages we looked at was in Psalm 34. And David says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then the next thing he does is he lists four ways to be obedient to God. Tell the truth. Be honest. Seek justice. I can't remember the four things exactly that he lists, but I found it fascinating. Found it fascinating. The way we fear God is we don't just go, oh, God, you're so big, it's scary. The way we fear God is we say, God, I will do whatever you've asked me to do even when the world tempts me to do otherwise because that's my battle. And when I walk in the fear of the Lord, then I have the strength of the Lord by my side. So church, out of love, give yourself up to God. Is there anything standing between you and the grace and the mercy of your heavenly father? Because he's freely giving it. I mean, he looked at Peter and said, Peter, after you've sinned, I already know how you're going to fail me. After you failed, come back, serve your brothers. Is there anything, anything that you need to deal with between you and God? Come back to him. He's not waiting to hurt you. He's not waiting to punish you. He's waiting to bless you. The Bible says it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And Paul goes on and he reminds us of our identity in Jesus Christ. He says in verse eight, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's an identity issue. Once you were not walking with God, once you were far from him, once the way you looked about the world and saw the world the way that you viewed God in your life and everything else, it was dark, it was dark. But now it's not dark because you met Jesus and he changed your life. He shined his light into you. So once you were darkness, now you were light. So now live as children of light. Like, walk in that identity. Don't go back to the old ways. There's nothing good back there. In fact, if you read the other verses around here, I skipped them for time's sake. He gives a a list, what we call a vice list. Like, don't do these things, and don't do these things, and don't do these things. It might be good to know and have in your head what God thinks is good and what God thinks is light. Don't go back to that way of living. For the fruit of life, life, not lice, I hope that's a different kind of fruit. The fruit of life consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness, righteousness, truth. Like these are big categories. Like if you're not sure what it means to walk in the light, just do goodness, righteousness, truth. And to find out what pleases the Lord. I love that last part. Because what it tells me is, you may not today know everything you need to know about everything. But don't be okay with that. Pursue it. Seek after it. And when you find something and God reveals to you, hey, this thing you really want, this thing you've been doing, yeah, I don't know, I'm not okay with that. Just at that point say, you know what, God, I had no idea. So here you go, you get that one too. What I tell people is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're taking an initial step of repentance. What repentance means is to turn from the darkness to the light. Turn from who you were to who God is calling you to be. But when you first do that, you, have, you do not know. I promise you, you do not know everything God wants to take away from you. You don't know. You think you know, because it's all the big things that make you feel ashamed and make you feel bad or you wish you'd never done or never happened to you. 
And then as you grow in your faith, and God starts to say, oh, and by the way, I wanna cut that part out of your heart too. And you're like, oh, but I really like that part of me. I love being sarcastic. Are you sure, God? Like, really? I really like being, you know, harsh with my words at times. I really like winning fights with people and debates. With, I love that. Are you sure? Whatever it might be for you. But as God reveals it to you, okay, God. And that first day when I gave you my life, I said, you're gonna have it all. Here you go, have this one too. And then the second thing I wanna call you to church is out of love, give yourself to others. Here's the thing, you cannot live the Christian life by yourself. It wasn't built to be that way. It was never built to be that way. Every time somebody's alone in the Bible, bad things happen. You don't want to be isolated. Satan loves isolation. You know why? Because darkness loves isolation. And one thing they'll teach, one thing they'll teach and say addiction counseling is that when somebody gets into their addiction, one sign to look for is they start to pull away from everybody. Why do they pull away? Well, they're afraid of being exposed. They're afraid their sin will become obvious to everybody. They're afraid they'll be judged or condemned or they're afraid they'll have to stop doing what they're doing. So the more isolated you become, the higher risk you are of getting attacked in battle. But I wanna call you to be spiritual Desmond Dosses, to go into battle, pursue others, look for those who are hurt, wounded, and alone, and find them and bring them to Christ. But imagine somebody comes to you on the battlefield and you are wounded from the battle. We're talking spiritually now, not physically. And they say, I'm here to help. Could you imagine saying, leave me alone. I don't want any help. And yet we do this all the time. Now, if you had shrapnel in your leg, you probably would say, no, 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 help. This hurts. But the reality is our pride gets in the way and it keeps us from crying out, medic. Help me. That's why Paul goes on in Ephesians 5 and he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them? To who? You, you just want me to run out in my workplace, like just go out in the center where everybody is, like during lunchtime, be like, hey! Last night I did some things. Y'all wanna hear about it? That's what we tend to do on social media. But that's not what Paul's talking about. So expose them to who? He goes on before I get to that. He says, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Again, the secret, hidden nature of things. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that's illuminated becomes light. That's why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Sometimes you're just so confusing. This one really isn't that hard, is it? When you're walking in darkness, you tend to have secret things. So let the light of Christ shine on everything in your life. And then you'll be walking in the light as he is in the light, and you'll have fellowship with God and one another. That comes right out of 1 John. 
They're saying the same thing. When Christ has illuminated your heart, when Christ has forgiven your sins, when it dawns on you there are things in me that I don't want in there anymore and I am powerless to deal with these things on my own, then I let the light of Jesus Christ shine in my heart, shine in my life, and I expose them. Yes, expose them to God. The scriptures say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. Of course, I come to God and I say, God, here's me. The worst parts of me, God, here they are. I've done these things, I'm not proud of them. But if I leave it there, change doesn't take place. And I've said this for years. Accountability is only as good as you desire to be accountable. While I love my brothers and sisters who are Lutheran and Catholic and other backgrounds, I do think they have a broken process. If I go to a confession booth and I tell some person that I can't even see the things in my life, I think they tried to build something that was helpful. I can bring them out of the darkness and into the light, but I don't ever have to look that person in the face. And theoretically, they aren't looking at me in the face. And there doesn't actually have to be accountability and repentance and change. I need a place where I can go and expose the evil deeds of darkness and say, these are the things that are sitting before me. These are the things that I'm tempted by. These are the ways that I've failed already and have a group of people who are gonna love me and care for me and hold me accountable and pray for me and fight with me and not quit on me and they're gonna be called the church. Now, everybody doesn't have to know everything, but somebody does. And they better be wise, they better be spiritual, they better love Jesus. Otherwise, you'll just go to that guy you know at work or that person you know you grew up with and they're just as messed up or whatever as you are or worse and you'll go to them and be like, yeah, it's all right, man, we all make mistakes, I love you, bro. And like, that's the end of it. Like, wow, is that person really giving you godly advice? You need somebody who's gonna say, man, I, I really think you ought to stop treating your wife that way. I'm not, I'm not just gonna pray for you. I'm gonna call you every day for the next seven days. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, how you doing? Now, I really think when you do that, like that's dishonest at work. I think you need to be upfront with your boss. You're not okay with that. What if I lose my job? Man, I, that would stink. I don't know, but I'll tell you what. I'll do everything I can to help you get a new job. I'll come alongside you financially as best I can, but you, you gotta stand before Jesus. You can't cheat, lie, and steal. Like you need people in your life we're gonna hold your arms up. I have people in my life who do that, and I'm so thankful, but it's still on me to go to them and expose the evil deeds of darkness, the ways that Satan is trying to trap me with his schemes. Recently, I was talking with one of these guys and on the phone, and in, um, at the end of this conversation this past week, he said, you know, Matt, he said, I just wanna say thank you because you've been there for me through a lot of stuff. And I thought, man, you have no idea. That's two-way street, brother. It's not, it's not just me being there for you. Right now, he's carrying a heavy load from something he's going through. And I was honored that he said thank you, but man, I was so thankful for the ways that he has served me as well. And then also this week, I was on the phone with one of our dear members who I love, and I will tell you nothing of their story. So if you're sitting out there and you wonder if it's you, don't be anxious. But at one point in the phone call, I said to them, why didn't you call us? Why didn't you reach out? And they didn't answer, but I thought to myself, I bet they were ashamed of what was happening. You don't have to be ashamed 
I promise you, we won't get it right every time. I promise you, because we're sinners, but we will do everything we can to walk with you through life's stuff. And um, a pastor down in Georgia named Cam Huxford, he is this person in my last pastor's life. They are this to each other. And my pastor told me one time they were having a deep conversation and Cam said to him this powerful phrase, refreshing friends don't try to change you, but because of the friendship, they make you want to change. That'll preach. Let's just go ahead and start the sermon right now. Now listen, let me just close with this. Who's coming after you? You've fallen in battle. You took a hit. Who's coming after you? Do you have a name? Who's holding your arms up? Life falls apart, who are you calling? And if you don't have somebody, please don't leave here today without taking a step to letting us come alongside you. Literally, you could pull out your phone right now and just text the word CONNECT to 317-565-4911. We don't necessarily have all the answers, but I'll tell you what, this is the hope of our groups. We have different kinds of groups, men's groups, women's groups, blended groups meet together. This is the hope, this is the purpose of our groups. So there's a group of people who would do life together that could be a safe place. And you're not gonna get there day one. You're not gonna walk in on day one. Here's everything you need to know. You're not gonna do that because trust takes time. But you can never get to the point of trust if you don't take the first step. So go to our Connect Hub, text 317-565-411, whatever you gotta do, but why wait another day? If you are afraid of what will happen next, then why don't we spend some time praying for God to help you with your fears? And we're gonna do that in just a moment when we take communion. The second thing I wanna to do today is I wanna to invite you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you have, maybe you come from a different background and you've never been united with Christ in baptism. Years ago, Martin Luther said that when he was feeling tempted by Satan, he would remind himself, I am baptized, I am baptized. He would literally yell it out loud because it was his way of reminding himself, I am connected to Christ no matter what the enemy throws at me. So listen, if you've not been baptized yet, maybe today's your day. Why don't you just do me a favor real quick? Raise your hand if that's you and if you're ready to receive Jesus. And we have people that are gonna come to you right now, just hand you a card. And the last thing I'm gonna say is, there's some of you, I don't know who you are yet, but we've been praying for you. We literally gathered this morning and we prayed, God, would you wake some people up? Would you get them here? And would this message be specifically for them? So I don't know which one of you that is. I'd love to hear you. I'd love to shake your hand and say, you're the one. God answered our prayers because I know some of you here, that's you. You'd be like, I don't know what happened. My alarm went off and I didn't tell it to her. Whatever it is, I don't know your story, but this is what we've been praying. So if you're ready to receive Jesus, raise your hand. And now we're gonna go into communion and I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna make this really simple. I set my cup down backstage. Hopefully you got yours. I'm just gonna say a prayer and I'm gonna leave you time to do business with God. Thank you, brother. I love you, man. That guy awesome. Love Kevin. Let's pray, and then we'll take this together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence, and I thank you for the love and the mercy that is ours of Jesus Christ. You're a good father. There's not been a battle in our life that we have gone through that you haven't prayed for us. There's not been a battle in our life that we have gone through that you didn't see it and know it. There's not gonna be a battle yet before us that we're gonna go through alone. But that's true in the spiritual sense. It's only true in the physical sense if we let it be true. So God, my first prayer is today, if we 
if we need this time with you, God, would you hear us as we just confess our sins and you promise to forgive us? But God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place right now that feel alone. They don't have godly men, godly women around them to come alongside them, to love them, to not judge them, but to make them want to change just by the friendship alone. And I pray, God, that they would be bold enough to reach out. I pray, God, that Andy is so stressed out and overwhelmed this week because he's got to find a way to connect another 300 people and he doesn't have any idea how to do it. God, I pray that's a problem we have to deal with but that it comes because right now, God, we hear your words in our hearts calling us into relationship with you. So Lord, as we take this bread and we take this juice, we remind ourselves of the forgiveness that is ours of Jesus Christ and that this bread is actually your body <laughs> and that we are your body and that we need you and we need each other. In Jesus' name.